the crisis of opioid overdose deaths that sparked the multitude of lawsuits leading to a historical settlement continues to rage, with overdose deaths at an all-time high, despite heightened national awareness and more resources than ever dedicated to treatment and overdose prevention. The persistence of this crisis underscores the dire need for well-informed and sustained solutions that work and funding for them. Undervaluing the importance of preventing family instability, childhood trauma and stress, and youth exposure to addictive substances, all of which have proven time and again to be among the primary contributors to problem substance use and addiction, is tantamount to giving up on ever solving the nation's enduring addiction problem and instead ensuring an ongoing game of whack-a-mole with an inevitable stream of future drug epidemics. That was Linda Richter, the Vice President of Prevention Research and Analysis at the Partnership to End Addiction in New York. Reading from the first opinion essay, Allocate Opioid Settlement Dollars to Real Addiction-Ending Solutions. She wrote it with Diana Fishbein, a senior scientist in the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and president of the National Prevention Science Coalition to Improve Lives. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO at STAT. Many drugs across the country are at risk of shortage. Eric Edwards, president and CEO of Flow, is here to discuss how they're revamping America's broken medical supply chain. Thanks, Angus. At Flow, we're on a mission to reimagine the essential medicine supply chain from the ingredients to finished products. We're making this possible through continuous flow chemistry and other advanced development and manufacturing processes. Through our smart CDMO services, we help pharmaceutical and biotech companies improve yields, reduce manufacturing costs, and sustain our environment by providing customized services for small molecule APIs and registered starting materials across all stages of development all done right here in the United States. For more information, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's P-H-L-O-W-U-S-A.com. Before I jump into this week's episode, I just want to mention STAT's 2022 Summit which takes place on November 15th and 16th. It's a live event in Boston, but will also be available virtually. This year's summit will provide silo-breaking and solution-focused discussions of the most important topics in healthcare with some of the industry's greatest minds. We're offering First Opinion podcast listeners who are interested in attending a 15% discount. You can see the agenda and register at statnews.com forward slash summit, and use the code POD, P-O-D, all caps, to get the discount. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, Linda. Thank you so much for having me, Pat. I'm looking forward to it. 
you know, your essay focuses on a settlement that consolidated thousands of lawsuits against several opioid makers and distributors. Under its terms, billions of dollars of settlement funds will flow to states and localities across the U.S. at a time when overdose deaths are at an all-time high. That could or should be a good thing, unless it's not managed correctly. And I think that's where we're headed today. What sparked your interest in writing about this settlement, Linda? Well, for years I've been studying um, and working in policy related to substance use and addiction. Um, And when I say that, I mean the full continuum of issues related to substance use and addiction from prevention through early intervention, treatment, recovery support, both from a prevention standpoint, from a research standpoint, from a policy standpoint, and healthcare. And um, what we continue to see over the years is certainly some advances in how we treat these issues in our country. So I will not just give a gloom and doom scenario. We've come a long way of thinking about substance use and addiction as a health issue, um, somewhat reducing the stigma around these issues, um, and really trying to take a more comprehensive lifespan, broad approach to it. But still, key issues remain um, that need to be overcome. And what's really striking to me is given this influx of money that's going to be coming to states and to local governments, um, there, when we look at the details of what's being done, there's still so much that people are missing that we know from the research evidence, from experience, really could make a substantial change to this massive public health problem that our nation faces. Um, There's a lot to consider, but still money is finally coming uh, to address this crisis and to not do it well and to not take into consideration all the great knowledge and um, information that's available out there to do it right just seems like such a shame to me. And we're starting to see, see it happening a little bit. Um, we gave an example in the piece of, you know, one state that's sort of siphoning the money from things that we know are so important to really address this crisis um, and, and putting it towards, um, you know, small certain segments of the solution, but not really a comprehensive approach. And that's starting to concern us. And that's why we decided to uh, really speak about this issue again. So as I understand it, there aren't really national guardrails for what happens with the money, that it's essentially on a state-by-state basis. You wrote about one state, Wisconsin, and can you tell the story of what you saw or you're seeing in Wisconsin? Sure. So, I mean, not to be overly negative about what Wisconsin seems to be doing, they certainly are putting money toward uh, certain key provisions that are important for addressing the crisis, including ensuring that there is better treatment, um, recovery support, and there is some money toward prevention. But prevention is certainly my my key concern and that of my colleague, Dr. Fishbeins, because um, what what we're going to have otherwise is what we kind of read in the beginning of this segment, which is we will treat the current problem, maybe, um, help the people who are currently addicted to opioids, um, potentially help them, you know, sustain recovery, which are all terrific and laudable and important goals. Um, But that's not going to make our addiction problem go away in this country. And we're already starting to see that, that as we address the opioid crisis and and put a lot of our resources toward opioids, we're seeing a stimulant crisis emerge, or we're seeing young kids, um, you know, vaping or using cannabis or uh, at rates that are increasing. And so to the extent that we keep sort of following the latest drug 
trend, and I don't mean to minimize the extent or severity of the opioid uh, epidemic as some little, you know, blip on the radar of what's going on in addiction. It's massive. Um, but until we take this more comprehensive approach where we kind of go more upstream and focus on the issues that are leading to these problems later on, we're never going to get out of this in any real way. So what Wisconsin did is certainly put a lot of money toward good things, but they had allocations for prevention that were really important. And they had allocations in, in there for um, family support services, which is always neglected in these kind of plans. Um, and that got pushed away and put more toward law enforcement. Again, certainly law enforcement is an important component of the solution. And I'm not you know, we're not saying that that shouldn't be a part of the larger picture, but um, it's sort of addressing more of the end game or the end stages of the problem rather than going proactively. So a lot of the states that we've seen so far that maybe aren't doing this the way we would hope, um, it's really kind of putting a Band-Aid on what is currently the largest element of the crisis um, and not thinking proactively. So, you know, um, important prevention strategies are often confused for preventing overdose deaths or preventing uh, the worst case scenarios of what happens if someone becomes addicted to opioids or uses opioids. Um, so, you know, fentanyl test strips are very important to help people who are already addicted, make sure that they're not taking a medication that's going to kill them, right? Or um, ensuring that people have naloxone, which is known as Narcan, to, over, to uh, overturn an overdose obviously important and money should certainly go go there as well and certainly treatment programs and recovery supports um, but that's all addressing the problem once the problem is entrenched and it is not adequately addressing all the factors that lead us to that problem uh, from early in childhood all the way moving forward well how does law enforcement get involved here in these sort of opioid or overdose prevention programs so in terms of prevention, there is a kind of older school mentality of having law enforcement professionals be the ones to deliver prevention programming to schools, to children. Oh, yeah. Um, and that that's there's a long history of that. Um, the evidence is not great <laughs> overall that that's the best strategy. That's not to say they don't potentially have a role. But um, what we're trying to do in, in the addiction field is move this whole conversation away from criminal justice and law enforcement and into healthcare and public health. And to the extent that law enforcement is the face of um, the intervention for substance use disorders and addiction, we're just continuing to promote that general stigma that this is um, a moral issue, a criminal justice issue, a law enforcement issue. Again, not to say that there's no role for law enforcement in reducing the availability and the supply of drugs that are dangerous to people. Um, but when it's on the treatment, the prevention, the solution side, what we really need are, um, you know, healthcare professionals involved in this. We need educators involved in this who would spend every single day with children who are, you know, adolescence and childhood is when substance use issues begin. I mean, we can't forget that. Um, and and sort of the seeds of addiction are planted um, early in childhood or in middle childhood, and they just accumulate and get worse and worse over time, leading to addiction. So to kind of come in once somebody's already um, in addiction 
and bring law enforcement in as the face of the solution is really kind of promoting this criminal justice viewpoint, this morality issue, as opposed to acknowledging the health needs of the people who um, are in kind of the worst stages of of their addiction. So a, a phrase that's running through my mind here as you're talking is scared straight, which I remember from my youth. Not that I ever needed it, of course, but, um, but I, I certainly heard about it. Is that the kind of programs that you're sort of talking about or alluding to here? I am. And that's, you know, from years ago and certainly had its problems, even though they were quite well-intentioned. Um, but it does continue till, till this day. Um, and, you know, it, it's really more um, this switch in how we think about what prevention means. So, uh, and this is something I've been talking about a lot, and so has my colleague, Dr. Fishbein, who can be with us today. But basically, this idea that prevention is so much more than an assembly in a school or um, a, a unit in a health class where you kind of teach kids about why uh, substance use and addiction is dangerous for them or is a problem or how it affects their brains. Now, those are important potentially. Um, but but that's not really what prevention means and what we understand prevention to be now, given all the knowledge and information that we've accumulated over the years. So what does it mean? It means you have to target people way beyond the child, him or herself. Um, the child has to be targeted with that information, certainly, but it's really the environment in which the child lives um, and and learns things and experiences things that is going to have the greatest impact on whether or not they're at risk for substance use, including opioids, but any substance use, really. So it feels like you're talking about parents and grandparents and family members. How do you get to them? Well, I'm glad you said that because I am talking about parents and other adult caregivers, but I'm also always very careful to say all the burden should not just be on the parents and other caregivers. And the reason I think it's really important to say that is because parents could be doing everything right. They could be having these early conversations with their kids. They could be modeling the appropriate behaviors. They could be um, fostering strength and resilience and good coping skills and all the things that we know are so important for preventing substance use in a child. But then if that child leaves the home and walks outside and goes to a school where the messages are completely different and um, where they're seeing, you know, kids getting suspended and punished or expelled for potentially using a substance, or they walk outside into their neighborhood, which is just completely surrounded by retail outlets selling and, and advertising nicotine products and alcohol products and cannabis products, or they're seeing people on the street misusing um, opioids or other drugs and not getting the attention and the help they need. Those are going to have a profound influence on the child's trajectory, whether or not the parent is trying to do their best. What happens is when kids are young, um, you know, the message is absolutely don't do any of this stuff. It's okay for adults to do. Then when they sort of enter late high school, college, it's it's haha. It's assumed that they're going to do it. It's kind of taken with some levity and and you know laughed off. But the minute that ch- those few children who kind of can't just keep it on that level of experimental or casual use, move to the next level of um, misuse or problem use, then there's something wrong with those kids. Then we blame the children. Then we assume that something went seriously awry. And it's just, it's kind of incomprehensible how we can expect kids to navigate that whole array of mixed messages that come their way and sort of the laughing off and normalization of substance use, but only up to a certain point. Because when you cross that that line, now you're a criminal. Now you, you know, 
society sort of stigmatizes you and sets you off into this corner where they don't want to deal with you anymore. It sounds like you're describing some mind-boggling kind of social engineering for <laughs> the U.S. culture. I didn't think I was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, it's a huge culture change that you're you're describing. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing um, we talk about a lot, and, and we recently just at my organization held this large convening of experts in prevention and, and ways to think about it and change societal norms. One thing we talk a lot about is how overwhelming is what we're calling for. Because to be honest, what we're saying is not just the change of what's normalized, but also how we address ch uh, children and young adults' health and well-being and substance use prevention, it's so much more than focusing on substance use. It's focusing on the environments in which kids grow up and the stability of their families and um, policies and programs that ensure that families have uh, stable incomes and housing and reducing poverty and uh, ensuring that parents have the time and the energy and the resources to have these important conversations with their kids and all these things that are quite costly and in some cases are uh, polarizing on a political level, like where our funds should go. So acknowledging all that, one could sort of throw their hands up and say, okay, sure, we could reduce addiction in this country if we solve all our social and economic and societal problems, and that's not going to happen. So, so to that, I would say, um, yeah, short of complete social engineering, I think what we need to do is uh, capitalize on the opportunities that we do have and the policies that we do know that work, even those that are not directly or seemingly related to substance use and addiction on it, on their face, but that we do know help ensure that kids can grow up in a more stable, healthy environment. In many cases, it could take one person to just pay enough attention to that kid and provide enough extracurricular, you know, activities or, or supports or something like that, that will, could keep a child off the trajectory that we don't want them to go in. So, so there are small efforts that we could take as we're trying to kind of change, you know, society overall. Say the head honcho or hancha of the <laughs> opioid settlement read your essay or listened to the podcast and thought, by golly, she's right and said to you, we'd like you to guide how states spend the money we're sending their way. What would be your first step? What would be the first thing that you think states should do with the money they're getting for this settlement? Um, so my answer would be take a big chunk of it and put it toward early childhood prevention, um, early child health promotion. Um, and I know that that won't solve the current opioid crisis, um, but that will finally help us avoid this continued pattern that we've been seeing over the many, you know, over many decades of one drug crisis after another that we're trying to tamp down as another one pops up. So we had the crack epidemic in the 80s. We had a heroin epidemic. We had the prescription drug epidemic now, and the heroin epidemic again. And then the, now it's fentanyl. You know, we keep just trying to push down the current crisis without addressing the root causes. So I would say, Certainly, invest in treatment, invest in evidence-based treatment, which, in, which includes, you know, medications and counseling and all the supports that are needed. Invest in recovery support, invest in all those things and school-based preventions. But don't short shrift the uh, importance of these kind of earlier interventions that target what we know are the factors that take a child and put them on the trajectory toward addiction in many cases, instead of 
just kind of, oh, maybe they'll try a substance here or there as they become a young adult and then leave it to move on and, and just live their lives. Um, so, so certainly more money toward, um, toward that. But also I would argue that it's not enough to just kind of give a prescription of what a state or local government should do. If you don't have the input and buy-in from the community, um, from the people living there who know what their individual issues and problems are, it's not going to be successful. So I would never call for, well, here's the, the universal plan that every state or community needs to do. We need to have a needs assessment on the community level. You need buy-in from the people in the community who really know what their issues are. Um, and, you know, really a comprehensive approach that targets the community at large and then also provides extra services and interventions for those people in the community who we know are going to be at higher risk and helping to support them with a health-based approach. Um, and again, less of a punitive criminal justice um, perspective. And it sounds like the approach is going to differ almost community by community. I think that's right. Um, I think that's definitely right. There are certain communities for whom, um, you know, they know what their issues are. We don't have to guess. You, If you talk to the right people, you're going to know very, very quickly what they uh, would prioritize. And it, and it pays to listen to them usually. Now, obviously, it depends who you talk to. So you really need a coalition of, uh, of representatives who really do represent the the, you know, the various families and, and, and community groups and locations within that area. But certainly um, just kind of prescribing what should happen is not going to be effective. I know we talked about Wisconsin, but, um, you know, and I, don't, I didn't read through all the details of these other states' plans, but there have been some reports recently of, you know, some other cities or states that when you look through what their plans are for how to set, how to spend the money, you're just not seeing mention of anything even remotely related to these prevention issues that we we know are so important. And every single expert that's written on this um, and all the organizations and university-based groups that have put out guidelines on what to do with the settlement funds, they all know to focus on prevention. But when you look at what the cities or states are currently proposing, you'll, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything related to uh, the prevention interventions that are being recommended in these plans. You know, we've we've seen this before, I think. You alluded to the um, master settlement agreement between the nation's four largest tobacco companies and attorneys general in 46 states in 1998. I saw a 20-year look back at that program by um, the Truth Initiative and the American Lung Association and others and over 20 years of about $10 billion a year being given to states, under 3% went to tobacco prevention and cessation programs. Are you worried that that might be the direction the opioid settlement is headed in? I'm worried, and just about everyone who knows anything about these issues is worried about just that. I mean, that was a huge um, settlement. It's way bigger than what we're looking at for the opioid settlement. Um and at the time, people, I was around at that time, I remember it, people were very devoted to making sure that the funds would go to tobacco prevention um, and the mitigation of the harms from tobacco use. And as you said, a tiny fraction of it did. Now, why did that happen? Well, states or local governments see a huge influx of money coming to them when they are in dire need of huge influxes of money um, and lots of pressures on their budgets that they need to kind of fill. And, uh, you know, unless the the guidelines are pretty strict about how the funds could be spent, 
uh, yeah, they're going to use it for, for what's going to be most expedient and most helpful in the moment. And that's, that's the other issue that's important to consider here, which is the long view. Whenever you're giving um, money to policymakers on a state or local level, um, they may have the best intentions, but they're elected officials and their terms are short and they're up for re-election in five minutes. So, um, you know, to say, hey, we're going to invest this many millions of dollars in something that you're not going to see the results of for 15 to 20 years when children being born today are going to be at risk for substance use. You know, it's really hard to motivate policymakers to, to, to make that commitment. Um, so what they tend to do partially understandably, but unfortunately, is is say, well, what are the most concrete, expedient, fast things we could do and invest in that we can show results to our constituents to say, hey, we've done something with this money and can't you see how nicely it's working? The interesting and um, fortunate thing about prevention is when it's working right, you don't see anything because what you're trying to do is prevent something you don't want. So when it's working right, you're not seeing that thing you didn't want happen. It's so hard to prove. It's the most difficult kind of research to do uh, because it requires decades of investment. Um, you know, hey, I'm going to ensure that a child who's born, um, you know, that their family has enough money to support them and make sure that they live in a stable environment or that the parents of that newborn baby gets their uh, much needed addiction or mental health treatment so that the child can grow up in a safe, stable environment. And you'll see 16 years later, that child won't become addicted to a substance. That's a very hard thing to convince people to support and put money into. Yeah, how to measure something that doesn't happen. Exactly. Very dif very difficult. Exactly. But very imp important. And actually, there are ways to do it, but we just would have to invest in that kind of research and think about these early issues as so relevant to the substance use prevention issue, which currently that's not how we think about it. In fact, just the word prevention means something different to everybody. I mean, when you say prevention in the context of the opioid epidemic, what you'll mostly hear back is um, Narcan, which is the um, overdose reversal medication. Again, crucial and important, and we should be investing in that and making sure everybody has access to it. I'm not putting that down, but that's prevention of an overdose. So that's prevention of the last stage, worst case scenario of someone with addiction. That's not preventing the problem from starting. You you really put addiction right like in the center of the spider web. I never really thought of that before in in terms of how many different how many different things influence it and how many different things it influences. Right. I mean, we kind of talk about it as the number one preventable public health problem that our nation faces is substance use and addiction. Um, unfortunately, it's been segregated or segmented off of all these other issues and kind of stigmatized and seen as, you know, the sad, unfortunate stepchild of our nation's problems. But when you consider it and think about it, it is so intricately in interwoven with, with everything that we have going on that we talk about, you know, on a political level and health and education and, um, and, and, Nobody knows that better than the families who have who have struggled with these issues in their own families, which is basically at least half or more families in the United States, even though no one likes to think of it that way. Um, it, it doesn't take much to, you know, for anybody you speak to, to be able to think of one or more family members who have been affected by this and not just affected in some superficial way, but where it really affects the entire family and how they, um, you know, manage their lives and, and, and go through their day-to-day -day existence. 
even the workforce, um, you know, people are starting to understand now that uh, we talk about mental health as such an important um, issue nowadays, which it certainly is. Uh, even that has been segmented off of the substance use issues when it shouldn't be. They're so tightly interwoven, yet how we um, prevent it and treat it and address it and give money toward those two issues are completely separated, uh, which makes literally no sense as we know how closely tied the two the two issues are um, at all stages of the problem. So, so I would argue what, what we don't do enough is understand how much this affects every single family in our country and how closely tied the mental health issues that we're so concerned with um, are with these substance use problems. You know, the, the family aspect, uh, my colleague David Armstrong in 2016, right as STAT was getting started, he wrote a story for us with the headline, 52 Weeks, 52 Faces. And he selected excerpts from the obituaries of 52 people who died of overdoses in 2016 as a way to draw attention to the fact that, as he put it, families are using these public notices to push for better and more treatment options while spreading the message that addiction is a disease and not something to be endured in shameful silence. Are you seeing that shameful silence lift or even with, you know, how far, well, not how far we've come, but how much further we've come in the last few years, does it still shroud things? I, I, I love that. And I do remember that um, what you just read about. Um, I think there was this big movement for families and the obituaries of the young people that they've lost to instead just, um, you know, not give a reason for the death to explicitly say what it was. And it's such a bold and courageous move. And I certainly think it moves the needle on the stigma um, because these families are not what people typically, you know, unfortunately associate with addiction. It just crosses all economic, social, racial, ethnic, religious, you know, lines. Um, so yes, I, there has been, I think, a real change um, and a very fortunate change in, in the stigma associated with this problem, but we're not where we need to be yet. Um, it is still quite stigmatized. Um, and there's still so much to do. But certainly, again, like I said at the top of the segment, I would certainly say that we're, we're moving in the right direction. We finally have government officials from both parties acknowledging addiction as a health issue, um, as something that is preventable and treatable, and that um, for the most part is not something that we should just lock away in our jails, but should actually address um, in every way that we can and invest in. Well, Linda, I hope you'll let me know if the opioid settlement folks name you the Tsarina of Fund Disbursement. <laughs> and even if they don't, I hope your work makes a difference. I really appreciate that. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the whitewater ahead. <laughs>